There is a, a powerful, luring effect of false religion. Some of you have come in contact with false religion, and that gives you a heightened awareness and a sense when you hear or see it again. But it is evident that false religion has a very powerful draw on people. You think of religions across the world, even like Judaism and Islam and Buddhism. You think of other more cultish sects like the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons. Why do so many people follow after these groups? Why do so many people link arms and and join the JWs and join the Mormons and convert to Islam and so forth? A lot of you know, of course, that I'm, I'm into furniture making and I really enjoy making furniture. And there was this one group, you've probably heard of the style of furniture, but shaker style furniture. You've probably heard that before. But the shakers were a group of people and there's actually the very last community of shakers right here in Maine, in New Gloucester, Maine. There's like one or two of them left. Right? What would possess somebody, though, to join the shaker movement a couple hundred years ago? I mean, one of their key principles was celibacy. What what would cause you to join the Shaker group and become a celibate for the rest of your life? In fact, there would be whole families, a dad and a mom and children who would join the Shakers and then separate as husband and wife and the children would be raised by the community. What would make thousands of people join a group like that? Well, frankly, I think there is, again, the deceiving pull of a false religion. There are certain qualities that people would see within the shaker group and they'd say, I like that and I like that and I like that. I like the hard work. I like the furniture making. I like the ideal that there'll always be provision for me within the context of a community. So I'll join the shaker group. There's just there's this power in these false religions that draw all the time. And, you know, when you consider all of these different religions, all of these different cults, and you compare them all together, you quickly realize that they all have one very key central thing in common. They have one thing that all of them, you can place it as a large mark in all of these groups, and it's an emphasis on your good deeds as vital for your acceptance into heaven. If you look at Judaism, if you look at Islam, if you look at the JWs, if you look at the Shakers, all of them have good works at the very center of getting to heaven. Standing before God with your package of good works. And so it was this attempt at reaching up to God. It's this attempt of doing enough. It's working hard enough, obeying enough, exhausting yourselves in the hopes that that maybe God will let you in. And you stand before God when you die and God looks at all of your good deeds and he says, come on in. You've done enough. But it doesn't work that way, does it? When you consider true religion in contrast to false religion and you consider biblical Christianity, you see that that is not the way that it works. But that in all of his mercy and grace, we see that God has reached down to us because we could never reach up to him. With all of our goodness, all of our good deeds, all of our works, we could never reach up to God. But we needed God to actually condescend to us. We needed God to reach down into the pit and to pull us out of it and to give us life. But this morning in John chapter 5, you find a man who had done all that he could 
He was in a location that he needed to be, or he thought he needed to be. He was hoping for miraculous healing from a pool. He was sick for 38 years. What more could he do? He couldn't move his own body out of the place. He couldn't move his own body away from this pool that he thought would bring healing to himself. He was doing literally all that he could for almost 40 years. Yet what happens? Christ in his mercy reaches down to the man. He reaches down in his mercy and grace and he steps in and does what no one else can do. So the first thing I want you to see, very simple this morning. I want you to first see the desperate man. And my brief outline is on the back of your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. But the first thing I want you to see is the desperate man. I want you to see the merciful Christ. And I want you to see the ruthless Jews. But first look with me in chapter 5 and verse 1 again. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. And then verse 5, a man who was there who had been ill for 38 years. And so in verse 1, you see what the time of this was. It was the the timing of some sort of feast. It it was either the Passover, it was either the Pentecost or tabernacles, Tabernacles. We don't know exactly what feast this was. But we know that it was a feast and all of the males would have been required to attend. And so Jesus attends, of course, as a male. Well, we see the location in verse 2. You see that it's near what is called the Sheep Gate. Now, the other place in the Bible that mentions the Sheep Gate is in the book of Nehemiah. Which makes sense because if you remember, Nehemiah went back to the land and he was constructing the wall around the city of Jerusalem. And of course, you have to build gates into your wall and the sheep gate is mentioned. This is in the northern part of Jerusalem. And it was through this sheep gate where they would usher in the sheep, the lambs, for the sacrifices. Which just as a side note is interesting to think about the lamb of God there by the sheep goat. But specifically, it mentions this location in Hebrew, it says... Of Bethesda. Now, anytime you're reading your Bible and you see the word Beth in front of a word, that word means house. So Bethesda means house of mercy. You know, of another Beth, Bethlehem, right? That means house of bread. Bethany, which happens to be my wife's name, is house of figs. It's kind of interesting. There was, there was an alternate. There was, and I hesitate to say this. Because the opposite is certainly true. But I saw that there was an alternate reading of that. That means house of affliction. And I can assure you, if there's any affliction in my house, it does not come from her. But of course, you have in every New England town, you could have a a Beth pizza. Such and such house of pizza, right? So this word Beth means house. And Bethesda specifically means house of mercy. And it's in Bethesda where there were many... Who stood in need of mercy. So it was properly named. This is the house of mercy. And there were many people within this house. That stood in need of mercy. But then in the third verse you have the scene. And it's all of these lame and blind and sick. And withered people. And you can imagine how how desperate of a scene this must have been. There's no, you know, all of these little clean rooms that are sterilized and all these nurses ushering in or out with masks and gowns and everything else. And this is just a place where there's so many people who are at their wit's end. They're lame, they're blind, they're sick and withered, the text says. 
I can almost imagine this being like a scene of a battlefield following a great battle. And all of these people were wanting to get into the well. They thought that there would be some sort of hydrotherapy within the well. And that if they could get in the well, maybe potentially as it bubbles or something, where it's fed by a spring, if they could get in there, then they could be healed. But they certainly did believe that it was some sort of angel that would come down and stir the water, and then they could get into it, and then they could be healed. But although this would have been a tragic sight, with all of the lame and the blind and the sick and the withered, one of the things that we have to keep in mind here is that this is not a sight of worthless people. This is a sight of people who have been made in the image of God. This is a sight of people who are not dispensable. They are not what Ebenezer Scrooge might say as the surplus population. These are people who are all made in the image of God. You know, even for us here today, it it doesn't matter if you're blind or lame or sick or you have dementia or ALS. You are made in the very image of God and thus you are valuable in light of that. But you know, there's an evident problem here. That although all of the lame and sick and the blind and the withered, although they're all made in the image of God, there was a problem of original sin. That despite made in God's image, that they are all there and they are all sinful. They're born in sin. They're conceived in sin. Adam and Eve's guilt and shame and nature have been imputed to them and have been imputed to all of us. This results in our depravity. Doesn't the Bible even use the language of sickness in reference to our spiritual sickness? It uses physical sickness to talk about our spiritual sickness. Jeremiah famously says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The the evident physical condition of all of these people laying around the pool shows how sick we are even within our own hearts. And so these are all image bearers carrying out original sin, expressing their depravity on a daily basis. However, Jesus finds the individual who has been there for a long time, the text says, and he sets his eyes on this man. He would have compassion on this man. This one who couldn't get up for almost 40 years. Can you imagine not being able to stand for 40 years? We don't know much about this man other than he was certainly desperate. But in verse 7, it's apparent that he didn't have any friends. In verse 14, there's a likely indication that he was quite the sinner before he couldn't walk anymore. Yet Jesus sets his eyes on this man and he asks him a really interesting question. Look at verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? Do I wish to get well? Like I would struggle so hard not responding sarcastically. Is the Pope Catholic? Eh, Kind of. Is, (laughs) Is water wet? Right? You'd be asking all of these questions. Are death and taxes the sureties of life? Yes, like obvious answer. Of course I would want to get 
wet. 38 years. Why wouldn't I want to get well? But the man doesn't go there. He doesn't, he doesn't go there. Look how he responds in verse 7. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. And so he's acknowledging to Jesus' question in terms of, do you want to get well? And he's thinking, my only hope of getting well is to have a friend that could help me to get into the water before anybody else gets into the water. That is my hope of getting well. The hydrotherapy, that's, that's, my, that's my hope. And so maybe the man is thinking, I've got nobody to help him. Jesus, he's a strong carpenter type of a man. Maybe Jesus could befriend him and help him get into the water before anybody else gets in the water. And so you notice when Jesus asks him this question that his immediate attention and focus is on to the pool and not on to Jesus. He doesn't realize that it's Jesus who would ultimately be the one to heal him. His hope and affection is still on this pool. It's kind of like the story of the woman at the well. Jesus comes talking to her about this uh, water. And she starts thinking, oh, water that I would never have to drink again? Never have to drink another glass of water again? But Jesus, again, is always thinking more deeply. This man needed to be dipped into the true and living pool of Bethesda that was standing in front of him. He needed Jesus to be his house of mercy. He needed Jesus to be his pool of Bethesda. And oh friend, how the world is full of sinners who are spiritually blind and lame and sick and withered. And they have been so for 38 and 48 and 58 years. Laying by the same old pool that they hope is going to give them what they think they need. Laying by the same old pool that they think is going to be helpful. Doing the same things, trusting in the wrong mechanisms. Looking to so much else, everything but Christ. Isn't that amazing to you when you're talking to a friend or a family member? That is in obvious spiritual agony as one who is sick and lame and blind in their spiritual state, in their, in their nature. And you present Christ to them. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. He's the merciful one. He's the one with grace and compassion. And he'll, he'll demonstrate that to you. And he'll take your sin and he'll be your house of mercy. Come into the house of mercy. Come into the pool of Bethesda, as it were. And they just look at you and say, no, I'm good. I'll just just continue laying by this pool. So often, so many people look to everything else. And friend, this is that subtle power of false religion. Looking to the other things instead of looking to Christ. And you see what happens in verse 8, that Christ looks at him and he gives him three commands. Look at verse 8 with me. Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. So three things. Get up, pick up, and walk. By the way, you don't see any demonstration of belief on the part of this man. Jesus is not somehow using the faith or belief of this man in order to bring about his healing. Jesus is healing this man 
in his own sheer will and power. And so he's not going to kind of tease something out of him in order to use it to, to help him. It's all of his own will. It's all of his own power. And so this is a key thing to be thinking of because I don't even think there's any evidence that this man believes in the rest of the text. I'm not even sure this person ends up knowing who Jesus is and trusting and believing in Christ as the woman at the well and many in Samaria had. And this is key because Jesus doesn't need your faith to heal you. He'll do it under his own will and sovereignty. But another thing to note about this passage is that this that Jesus is telling this man to do something that he cannot do. Get up, pick up and walk. He hasn't been able to do this for almost 40 years. How how is he just going to do it now that Jesus is standing before him? But Jesus is telling the man to do something that he cannot do. He's commanding an impossibility so long as the only consideration is the man's strength. This man doesn't have the strength to stand. But Christ has the power to make him stand. This man doesn't have the power to pick up his bed. But Christ has the power to enable him to pick up his bed. He doesn't have the ability or the power to walk. But Jesus has the ability and the power to make him able to walk. Incidentally, you don't have the power to save yourself. You don't have the power to save yourself. But Jesus has the power to save you. In regard to your sanctification and your walk with the Lord, you don't have the power within you to obey all of Christ's commands. But do you know who has the power to enable you to obey all of Christ's commands? Christ has the power to enable you to obey all of Christ's commands. So this man is getting up from his bed under the power of Christ. And he stands to his feet under the power of God Almighty. This is an example of what the great church father Augustine said when he said, Give what you command. And command what you will. The problem here though is that John throws something in at the end of verse 9. That really colors our whole passage. Look at the end of verse 9. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. Uh oh. It's the Sabbath day. And this brings us to the ruthless Jews. Look at verse 10. So the Jews are saying to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath and it's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. And afterward, Jesus, who found him in the temple and said to him, behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made them well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now, you may not particularly like this language, but in all of the right ways, Jesus was a troublemaker. He made trouble knowing he did this 
knowing that it was going to cause consternation, didn't he? Jesus makes the right kind of trouble here. And he told this man to do something on the Sabbath day, which would have been exactly what the religious elite would have said not to do. It's the Sabbath day. You're not allowed to do anything resembling work on the Sabbath day. There is simply no way for us in our culture today to wrap our mind around this kind of culture back in Jesus' day because our culture says that you can do whatever you want on the Lord's day. I mean, they don't even have a category for Sunday being the Lord's day. And so if you were to go this afternoon and help somebody move into an apartment downtown Augusta, and there you are helping somebody move, you can guarantee nobody's going to come up to you and say, you can't be moving a bed on the Sabbath day. We don't have a culture that can recognize and understand and then have the wherewithal to say, hey, the the rabbi said this, you can't can't do that. But in Jesus' day... All of the Jews around here see this man pick up his bed and begin to walk. You have all these people milling around. And if they see you do something against the rules, they'll call you on it. But it's in this thick and highly religious works-based environment that Jesus tells this man to do something that is going to bother all of the Jews who see him do it. And you notice when he's questioned that the man says, basically, look, the guy who healed me is the one who told me to pick up my bed and walk. Jesus performs, by the way, quite a few miracles on the Sabbath day. In Mark chapter 1, he heals Peter's mother-in-law. In Mark chapter 3, he hands a man with a withered hand. In John chapter 9, he hands a, heals a man born blind. In Luke chapter 13, he heals a lame woman. In Luke chapter 14, a man with dropsy. In Mark chapter 1, a man with a demon. And then in John chapter 5, this man here. Seven people he heals on the Sabbath day, knowing that it is going to cause a huge problem with the Jews elite who see him do it. So Jesus is happy to topple, not the principle of God's people resting on the Sabbath day, on the Lord's day, but the man-made rules and regulations that were never put in place by God onto the Sabbath day. He's happy to topple all of the extra things that man had lumped onto the Sabbath. And friends, this is where we need to really consider this false religion, and for most of us, how it, how it enters into our lives is through what we would call legalism. And many of us grew up in very legalistic atmospheres. I've recounted to you again and again the kind of environment that I grew up in that was stifling in terms of legalism. All of these stacks of man-made rules and regulations that we were required to obey And then we would look right in the eyes of God. Then God would be pleased with us if we not only did what the Bible said, but this other list of rules and regulations as well. And legalism is as old as the earth itself. We're always seeking to add onto the word of God. And this is something, friends, that we must keep ourselves away from. Within your own life, within the life of your family, within the church. 
where legalism mostly comes into play is not necessarily through the reading of God's word and coming to convictions and understandings from God's word that you say, these are to be applied in my life. And I really sense that God wants me to walk in this way. But it's when you come to these certain convictions and these certain understandings and you begin to impose them onto other people. That's where legalism really becomes deadly. And so to understand God's word and to make certain applications and you really believe God wants you to walk in a certain way, that is one thing. But it's when you begin to take that and impose it onto other people that becomes the problem. But after slipping away, Jesus comes and finds this man. And notice what he says in verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. Jesus heals this man, apparently, in large part for the sake of his holiness. And I think there's even an indication here that his original illness was the result of some kind of sin. Now, in John chapter 9, we're going to find Jesus say, the, the, the man born blind, his sin or, or his illness is not because of his sin and it's not because of his parents' sin. But there seems to be some kind of indication here in verse 14 that Jesus says to this man, don't go and sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. We have this also in 1 Corinthians in regard to the supper, don't we? Where, Jesus, or where Paul says that do not take the supper in an unworthy manner. Otherwise, you may be sick. You may die. Some have, he says. And he basically gives Christ away to the Jews in verse 15. Notice the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. This is the man who healed him. This is the man who gives him his life back. And he goes to the Jews in verse 15. And he specifically tells them that it was Jesus that made him well. And notice what it leads to in verse 16. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And it's interesting because Jesus could have chosen to go there and do that the day before, couldn't he? He could have chosen to do it the day after. But he did it on that day. And he knew that this man would tell the Jews who it was that did it. He knew that it would offend the Jews. And he knew that it would lead to his own persecution. But he did it anyway. Jesus was always seeking to work out the will of his father. And you even see in verse 17, but he answered them, my father is working until now and I myself am working. The father was continuing to work out his will and he was working out his will through Christ. And it was the will of God that this man would be healed on this day at that moment, not before and not after. Wasn't this a wonderful passage? Next week, we're going to come to John 5 and verse 18. And I'll give you a little bit of a heads up on that. If you look in verse 18. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And we'll look at that more next week.